So this is actually, I would like to call it, we are living in fantastic times now because mm-hmm. everybody can now do fantastic research together. This, this is computer oh, yeah. from home. So because if you need more um, computational power, then you can use cloud solutions, for example. What is the role of artificial intelligence in drug discovery and drug development? In this episode, we talk about DeepMind's AlphaFold, investing in life science companies, the state of artificial intelligence in drug discovery and drug development, how does GDPR limit the development of artificial intelligence in drug discovery, and the human genome and artificial intelligence. Today's speaker is Marco Schmidt, Chief Scientific Officer of Biotherapeutics.ai. can value billionaires now. <laughs> so... Um, when they were young, they wanted to be rich. <laughs> when they're rich, they wanted to be young. Mm. Coming to your question, so this reminds me to a project we also had. So we looked in the uh, uh, genomes of um, long-living people, so 100, 120. So they they checked mm. them the, um, in the genomes and compared to people who died early. And uh, there's... Um, there was always the idea that there is this, the longevity gene, but actually what we saw, there is no longevity gene. There are, uh, uh, I call it, uh, short-givity genes. So there are really genes that are known for diseases, and if you die early, there are, these genes are extremely overrepresented in these in this mm-hmm. cohorts compared to the long-living people. And the other way around is what, what is the accuracy of your prediction? Mm. Because there's then still a chance that this is just nonsense. So you really have to prove it. And to prove it means that you have a prospective clinical trial over the next 20, 30 years. And then it's very expensive to prove it. Very expensive. And it takes ages to prove it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So for example, type 2 diabetes. Mm. And we have extremely, extremely good prediction models now. So um, I think it's 99% accuracy you see in prediction model for type 2 diabetes. Um, the big providers of synthetic clinical trials, and, and, and we'll not call names here. Mm-hmm. They will say they have, they also use a sophisticated, um, a sophisticated algorithm. But in the end, you can also do machine learning with Excel. This is I know, I know a lot of people will, you know, I give, probably it will end up now with a shit storm, but uh, it, it's possible. You can do it. Um, and believe me, um, um, bigger organizations, um, Microsoft Excel is still the standard. Marco had an exceptional academic career. He won the best PhD of the year award in chemistry in his home country, Germany, and then went on to do a postdoc at the University of Cambridge. During his time at Cambridge, Marco received the Marie Curie Fellowship as well as a stipendium from the Gates Foundation to do his own research. Marco worked with excellent people like Chris Abel, who would later become Vice-Chancellor, and Tom Blandell, the founders of Aztex, a fragment-based drug discovery company that was acquired for $866 million. His work with Chris and Tom opened his eyes to the possibilities of launching his own company, as well as to the limitation of traditional approaches to drug development. 
the inability to predict clinical efficacy, solving this problem became the mission of biotherapeutics.ai. Biotherapeutics.ai combines expert judgment, mechanistic validation, and artificial intelligence. Their expert drug selection committee, led by Jake Scannell, picks treatments most likely to go smoothly through regulatory processes, have market fit, and succeed in trials. Candidate treatments are discovered using their unique white data algorithms, which decipher the complex interplay between genes and thereby identify connections between drug targets and diseases that would otherwise remain unseen. Biotherapeutics.ai evaluates data from their synthetic clinical trial platform. The platform evaluates each potential treatment in an independent mechanistic model. It predicts efficacy and side effects. I hope you enjoy this episode the same way as I did. Marco, it's good to see you. We are now live on the internet, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, <laughs> and on several <laughs> recording stations to make sure that we don't lose any information of this valuable podcast. It's good to see you today. Uh, yesterday, when I prepared for the episode, I saw a post on LinkedIn from Lex Friedman. He's a podcaster from the United States. And he wrote, maybe I can share my screen and can uh, can show you the post. Uh, he congratulated DeepMind for developing Alpha Tensor. And he said, these are the early steps in AI, inventing new ideas in math and physics, worthy of a Nobel Prize and Fields Medal. We live in exciting times. And this morning, I pulled up the Nature publication, the article uh, he referred to. DeepMind AI invents faster algorithms to solve tough maths puzzles. Did you hear about that? I mean, uh, you referenced uh, DeepMind in in your article on LinkedIn. Yeah, so there's the company DeepMind, but I mentioned AlphaFold. Mm -hmm. AlphaFold is a deep learning uh, yeah, application to predict um, the protein structure just based on the amino sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, I need to say that I don't have, I haven't read the article, so, um, but it looks for me that this is an um, other area where is DeepMind active, mm -hmm. but I only, I'm only aware of AlphaFold now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's pretty exciting, the mm -hmm. development uh, of AlphaFold as well as the latest article. And uh, I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear more about the, what can artificial intelligence do in drug development and drug discovery? Let's start with uh, the first question. Can you please give me a little bit uh, overview uh, of uh, where you're coming from, what your profession is and what your company is doing? Yeah, so uh, my name is Marco. I'm originally a biochemist. So I studied biochemistry here in Germany and Tübingen and in Berlin. And then I went on to conduct a PhD in fragment-based drug discovery, and this was then followed by a postdoc at the University of Cambridge, uh, mostly founded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I moved more and more into the field of drug development, of drug discovery in my academic career. And uh, when I worked in Cambridge, I need to say that I worked with uh, brilliant guys. So um, uh, Chris Abel, the late Chris Abel, died uh, two years ago, um, unfortunately. 
ein Tom Landell. Und sie ist Geistwehr, sie Estex Founders, so sehr founderte Company called Estex in the fuckbit based Track Discovery Field, I think 1999. Und dann sie um, I think in 2013 to Zuka. And what I learned um, from these two guys, and especially with the setting, uh, uh, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is that the big problem is not to find the ligand um, uh, for a drug discovery or a drug development project. It's more problematic to predict the clinical efficacy of the ligand. So uh, this is actually the black box. So uh, in the beginning, when you, when you think about the disease, how you want to target the disease, and all the models you use, so you read a lot of literature, you look in, at in vitro experiments and so on. But these are all small experiments and the big final experiments when you go into human and you really want to see whether there's an effect or not, there's actually no prediction available. Mm. So this is actually a black box. And in 2013, there was then the first publication uh, by, the, by the former uh, head of R&D of US Merck, so Edward Skolnick, and he had he proposed the concept of a genetic support or genetic evidence. So he said when the drug target, so normally you have a ligand, and the ligand binds to a, lig uh, to a, to a drug target, to a protein, mostly a protein, and modulates the function of the protein. And when the protein is somehow connected in a genome-wide association study with the disease, then he called, he told this the drug target linkage, the genetic mm -hmm. evidence. And if you have it, he postulated, then it's more likely that um, the drug target is causal for the disease. So modulation of this would have an effect in the clinical trial. And this was then proved in 2015 in a big retrospective study um, by people from um, GlaxoSmithKline. So they looked at all successful and unsuccessful drugs in the last 30, 40 years, and they really could show that there's, there's evidence. And when you have genetic evidence, when you have genetic support, then it's more likely, I think it's two times more likely that there is efficacy and efficacy is then shown in the first, so in, uh, in, in, the, in the clinical trial with patients. And, but the, the point already is that it was just what I call explanatory statistics. So you look at data and um, you explain the data. Uh, here at Biotech's AI, the idea was then when I met my co-founder, Jörn, he's a computer linguist. So I'm the biochemist, he's a computer linguist, was the idea to use predictive statistics, what is now called machine learning or artificial intelligence. So just another kind of thinking. So we are looking, we try to find now the patterns in these genetic, in the genetic evidence to use this for prediction whether um, a drug and a drug target combination will be successful in a clinical mm -hmm. trial for a specific disease or not. And uh, yeah, that was the idea in 2015, 2016. Uh, we had then here a so-called so startup grant at the University of Potsdam. Um, after this, we then joined, um, that was, I really really have to say, we joined Startup Bootcamp Digital Health Berlin, so an accelerator program here. And then we also founded then Biotech AI, our company. And, uh, yeah, now we're working more than four years on this. And Congratulations. Uh, or five years, sorry, five years. 
So you are over the worst phase of a startup. So the first yeah. three years are crucial and then comes the big success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually. So and we turned also from the business model from a service provider into now um, our own products. So we have now three products in clinical development and one clinical trial wow. running. Yeah. How much money did you raise so far out of curiosity if it's not confidential? It, it's, it's not confidential. So it's actually not so much as three million. Hmm. And the rest is then uh, was revenue, revenue based. It's very efficient. I had two recent podcasts uh, where I was more focusing on uh, entrepreneurship, on investing. Uh, and they're also doing uh, research and development in artificial intelligence. Let's stay in this podcast episode on the artificial hmm. intelligence side. And let's start with some basic uh, terms and with some uh, basic hmm. definitions. I know from the last year that many retail investors, business angels, got curious with the successes of CRISPR and Intelia yeah. to invest in life science projects. Um, but it's not the most easiest field. I mean, let's start with the first term that you mentioned, drug development and drug discovery. When I entered the life science industry in 2006 and I told people that I'm developing drugs, they looked at me and said, what? Are you doing something illegal? <laughs> and uh, to avoid uh, in the times of cancel culture that this podcast episode is taken down, let's start with defining drug development and drug discovery in the context of this episode. What is your definition of drug discovery and drug development? So so first of all, I sort of make it clear, so this is not illegal. Uh, I know that these, these two words, because when you're German speaking, then there's often a misunderstanding. So here I would like to focus, we are, we are working on medications. Mm -hmm. So we are working um, on uh, different kinds of um, chemical or biological entities that can modulate some stuff in your body in order to treat or cure a disease. Uh, then the next, what you, what you ask, uh, uh, drug discovery and drug development. So normally discovery means that you really in the early phase of your development. Um, discovery means then that Uh, you uh, you still think about the disease, what are the mechanisms of the disease, how you can treat the disease. And then you start um, developing ligands, try to um, test the ligands in in vitro models, so in disease models very easily. And that's why it's there's still this discovery thing because it's like um the land is not completely it's still unknown and you are the first entering it development is a little bit more than you have already proven that your legal works and you want to go into the normal way how to prove it and you can say there are i call it now five phases the first is so-called preclinical phase where you check your ligand um, in in vitro models that it's safe The next one is the so-called phase one clinical trial. And here it's still looking at safety. So you tested then in humans and you're very interested that these humans, they do not have any severe side effects. So you tested actually in healthy humans to check the safety. And then the, the clinical phase two becomes from development standpoint, much more interesting because this is the first time when you have this so-called dosage finding. So you want to think about what is the, we call it a therapeutic window. So what kind of dosage you have to administer 
which um, shows an effect, but is not toxic to the person. And here in this, especially in the later phase two clinical trial, because this phase two B is the first time when you, when you also look for efficacy, for the efficacy signal. That's why this is the biggest problem. So the normal success rate in a phase two B to, to, uh, to uh, clinical trial is 29%. So it's extremely low. It's extremely low. And then there's a clinical phase three, and this is mostly the big cohort where you have to show um, from a statistical point of view that there's efficacy. So you need a lot of patients um, and healthy controls. It should be randomized, placebo-controlled, prospective to, to really show that there's, there's an effect. And uh, nowadays we have also what we call phase four. And phase four is after the approval that um, your uh, your medication is still under observation by by you as the develop, developer and also by the authorities to look whether there are any side effects that are now in the usual way how you in the clinical in the daily routine is still probably some difficulties you haven't haven't seen in the testing. So these are the five five phases. And the five phases, you normally say this is the drug development phase and everything before is the so-called drug discovery phase. That's an excellent definition. Thank you very much. Let's uh, also define a second words that you use quite frequently in this episode and that people interested in investing in drug discovery and drug mm -hmm. development projects you might also hear in the future, it's ligand. In the context of this episode, what is a ligand in drug discovery? Yeah, so what is a ligand? Um, I would like to say it in a very simple words. It's actually the tool and it's from a business perspective, perspective your asset. Mm -hmm. So uh, a ligand uh, is can be a, a chemical structure or it can be also a biological Uh, entity like an antibody or a peptide but this is actually something what you have i call it on what you have on your desk and what you have to take mm -hmm. so this is actually your tool and the ligand it um by the definition binds to a target to a drug target um so mostly uh, it's a macromolecule um with a deep mostly with deep pockets where a, a ligand can bind into and this by binding there is then a change in the function of this macromolecule of the protein for example and with this um, modulation of the function you 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 want to use an effect in the body for example very famous are the statins for cholesterol they bind to an enzyme which is responsible for cholesterol synthesis And they block the active site, so no cholesterol is anymore produced in the liver, for example. So the ligand is is your tool in in in, in, in drug development and drug discovery, and is from business perspective also your asset because I like you only contract it. Hmm? I, I like the I like the business approach that you have. I really enjoy this uh, definition. Uh, ligand is. Your asset, whenever you hear a presentation and someone, a scientist is talking about elegant, listen closely. He's talking about your asset. So this is, <laughs> this is the most important part of the presentation. I think this is great. When, when we stay in track discovery, uh, I think. Yeah. Every, a lot of people now know track discovery from the last three years. We heard all the 
Biontech and uh, Moderna stories mm -hmm. with phase three studies with 40,000 patients yeah. and also the price point of three to four billion. And when you look at the length of drug discovery and drug development process, I think the early days of mRNA technology were in the 60s and BioNTech started somewhere in 2008. So they were working really hard for over 10 years on moving the asset forward to a stage where they can produce a new vaccine over the weekend. So this was in the news. Mm. Why is this process so expensive, so long and so challenging? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, there's a lot of thinking about this. And I'm, I don't know whether I'm the right person about this because I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm still too young that I have not mm -hmm. thought about so thoroughly as other people do. Uh, my personal view, and this is just my personal view, is that um, the way how we do um, drug development, drug discovery, uh, is um, still very, what we call, reductionistic. So in science, in the last 200 years, we have this um, mindset of reductionistic science. So what does it mean? Uh, when you have a big problem, you separate the big problem into smaller parts, into smaller problems, and then you try to solve these smaller problems. And when you have the solution of these smaller problems, you think you can put these smaller solutions together, and then you have the big solution. So this is this, this and this is very, my opinion, very, very successful, this reductionistic approach. So think about your problems, sorry, uh, how you approach this. And it's often that you start separating the big problem into smaller ones and then mm. put it together. Uh, the problem is with living systems, especially with the human body, is that uh, it's it's more than its parts. So and this is, in, in my opinion, the big problem. So. Uh, we always see that um, in, in, we we tend to have very simple models in biology because the biology is extremely complex. Our tools are also very limited. Then still to say it, in my opinion. So you have your pipettes, you have your in vitro assays, and so on, and you tend to have very simple models and then on based on these simple models you have an idea whether how how the how the ligand how the drug is uh, behaving in your in your body and when you then go for example from from your cell dish um to an animal model it's always oh god it's, it doesn't work you know because still the animal is more complicated than i expected it and then the next step to the human body is is also very it's very very complex it's very very difficult to apply this from a very simple model then to the human body because there is a lot of in the human body is a lot of black box there's a lot of things we do not know that we do not understand 
but we really want to manipulate the system in a specific direction. And this is it, in my opinion, this is what makes it so difficult and very risky and so painful because if you do not understand the machine in its own, in its whole, and you want to manipulate it, uh, then it's, it's extremely difficult. Yeah, that's absolutely true. The human body is uh, still mm. a mystery. I mean, if just think, uh, I read some articles uh, recently about longevity research and uh, mm. the effects of uh, sleep, nutrition, of uh, exercise, life habits. Uh, I think this all has an effect on the biological system and the changes also the environment uh, for scientists like you in mm. different patient populations. It's absolutely clear. When I look at the success rates, I think in drug discovery and early stage drug development, we are talking about 99% failure rate before a project reaches the clinic. So one out of 100 makes it and the other 99 are for publications and to increase the know-how and the knowledge. Mm. And when I look into the clinics, I think it's a little bit better, but we are still from a phase, I think as far as I remember, from a phase one project, from 10 phase one projects, one reaches the market. So yeah. and the other nine yeah. don't. Yeah. Um, but you have to differentiate. So big pharma companies are actually not so good in R&D productivity, mm. but biotech's much more better. So you see here, uh, I don't know whether you heard about this famous uh, word, um, uh, it's called Irum's Law. Mm -hmm. So it's a little no, bit, no. Uh, no, you haven't heard about it. No, no, this. no, that, it's, uh, explain it, please. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. So this is actually the, the complete opposite of Moore's Law. Moore's Law is um, when you look at CYP-US, that CYP-US, they be, 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 become better and better over the time. And... Irum's law is the is the point that R and D productivity is decreasing over the time. Really? Yeah. So this is the this is the overall the overall um, the overall idea of Irum's law, or how they describe the R and D productivity in big pharma. But what we have seen since 2010 is that there is they call it um, breaking Irum's law that mm -hmm. the productivity is now increasing also in pharma, mm -hmm. and this is very interesting because uh, we see now that there is a lot of change in decision making in pharma and in biotech based on novel technologies, and there is also um, other business strategies we see that makes these projects more successful in the past. That's that's amazing. I didn't look at it from this angle. I just looked at it from the organi organizational point of view. Mm -hmm. And my personal explanation why R&D doesn't work so well in big pharma companies mm -hmm. is that by definition, a company is an organization where more than one person works hard on accomplishing just one goal for a defined set of customers. Just think about Apple, for example. Apple, for most of the time in this century, was a one-product company that just delivered Apple iPhones, smartphones. And then their organization is set up to just accomplish this one goal, push mm. one smartphone to the population. And every time when something new is discovered, it means that this new thing that might be beneficial in the future is simply outside of the mission of the company. So mm. it means doing research and doing R&D inside the company 
um, can't work by definition because it doesn't really help the current goal and the current mission. So it might help in the future, but counteracts the processes that are set up in the company. And my personal opinion always was when you find something new, put it in a startup outside of the big organization, set up a project team, let them work on it. And when they are successful, then you can reintegrate it because then it fits in the, into the mission. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It's a little bit innovators to deliver uh, a dilemma you, you're, you're talking about, I guess. So that for a big company or for a big organization, a new technology is always a kind of a threat to the existing business model. Yeah, you could call it that way. You could call it yeah. that way. Yeah. I don't know. I, um, in my opinion, when I look at a pharma company, especially R&D uh, facilities, in my opinion, it's some little bit their job to mm -hmm. do new, to, to prove new technologies. And um, people are always complaining about pharma, but in my opinion, uh, uh, it's it's tough. Uh, uh, and in the past, uh, they had too much focus on these reductionistic tools, mm. what I explained before. But uh, you can say, so this the Human Genome Project in 2000, I guess, so mid 2000, you see more and more that they are using uh, genomics, omics technologies more and more. And they are also going more into um, yeah, very specific disease areas. So they break with the general idea of the big blockbuster. So where you have 1 million patients and then you want to deliver a, a drug for 1 million patients, then um, uh, I call it the, the um, uh, yeah, the things you have to do, it's, it's, it's very tough. You know, you have to conduct a big clinical trial. You really have to show that the endpoints work and so on it has to be safe and safe in a big in a broad population and um, since 15 years i would like to say we see that there are more going for us I, I, I call it diseases with smaller patient groups more targeted where they have more omics evidence that this is working and here you really see that then this is more successful uh, so uh, for sure, a biotech is always faster and moving. But for example, when you see Roche with Genentech, for example, they 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 try to set it up that they have these more startup-oriented organizations with Genentech, and you have still Roche with the traditional pharma and of yeah. course um, sales and distribution uh, uh, units you need when you want to market the drug. 
Now, Genetic is a good point. I'm currently reading the book of Sebastian Malaby, where he uh, is talking about uh -huh. the power law and the development of venture capital in Silicon Valley. And Genetic yeah. is a big part of the book. Um, I mean, you mentioned it, I think, I like also the term networked economy that exists since the 90s. I think trying to put everything in a big company. So from the beginning of the research and development mm -hmm. up to marketing a product is just a too diverse mission. Um, you mentioned marketing and sales, bringing a product to like the mRNA vaccines to a billion or two billion of people in different jurisdictions is a hard work. And I would rather focus a big organization on this goal to distribute the finalized product than trying to push everything in, in the, in the entire value chain. So I really like mm -hmm. the, the setup that we have currently. You have big pharma that are proficient in marketing and doing the final mile with the regulators. Mm -hmm. Then the early stage biotechs that solve the development problems that are not really suitable for research organizations due to a different mindset and also not yet ready for big pharma. And then you have the early ground, uh, of pure science and research, where I think the research organizations are the best part to have it. So I really like this value chain approach. We have research, you have the market experts, and in between there are biotechs and venture capital. Yeah, but there are also a problem for the biotech company because uh, uh, the value creating step or value make the money is still than pharma. So there's this famous idiom, uh, when you have invested $1 in a biotech, uh, stock and one dollar in a pharma stock, then the biotech, uh, your biotech investment is now worth 15 US dollar. Mm -hmm. And when you have invested it in pharma, it's now 800 US dollar worth. So you see, uh, and, and this is actually one thing that the biotech people have to think about how they can capture the value still, because all the value is created in the last step and all the money is earned in the last step. So it's then very difficult to keep, um, yeah, yeah, or how you can keep up with the success in the later stage with your ideas in the early stage. Negoti negotiation talent in between. Yeah, in negotiation. Mm -hmm. uh, interrupt me, just just go ahead. No, what I mean is uh, you see, and then we can also apply this to the AI drug discovery dry de uh, development phase uh, uh, industry. So the startups in this in this area. And so they all started as a service provider, as SPD, mm -hmm. for example, and then you move over the time into a clinical stage company because you see the real value is at the end. And um, uh, there was again two or two weeks ago. There was really nice uh, article um, uh, by the same guy, by the same person who uh, coined the, the name or coined the, um, uh, coined the name Urim's Law, Jack Scannell, mm -hmm. and he published uh, a game theory paper about uh, uh, why all the biotech companies, the the platform, especially the platform companies, they are now uh, going into move into a clinical biotechnology company because of this reason money is the later stage and uh, uh, there's really this advantage because uh, in the beginning when you have the real innovation uh, people do not tend to invest in the early innovation because they do not see the money back or it's you know mm -hmm. and um, uh, this is a very interesting from an innovation point of view how we can get now in the early beginning that the real the real new stuff can 
come really to patience when there is no incentives anymore for investors to invest in early stage projects. Um, I can give you my my perception mm -hmm. of, of this area. It's just my definition. I think that, I mean, in Europe, we have a general problem. There's not enough capital on the market for uh, for the innovation that we have. This is a, this is a, when I compare the availability of venture capital in Europe with the United States and also with China, the the other two regions, China and the United States, invest five to ten times more per year in their companies and in their research and especially in development. When I look at Europe, um, I think all the dollars of the majority of the euros go into early stage research, not development. So there is a lot of grant funding, a lot of philanthropic mm. approaches. You also mentioned Bill and Melinda Gates, for example, the foundation. These are all philanthropic approaches. So where they invest in companies or uh, in research organizations, not to develop a drug up to the market, but to just produce new IP, new know-how, and not finalized projects. When you look at the later stages, so why there is more money, I mean, the risk, there's less risk. and The studies are just bigger, so you need to allocate more money. When I look at the stages in between, there are investors, but the the risk profile is different. So you mentioned Merck, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline. So these are the big pharma companies. When I put the euro in these companies, the risk of them going extinct is almost zero. It exists. Uh, we can have an economic breakdown or something really mm -hmm. terrible can happen in the world. And then these companies don't exist anymore. But usually they are set up to survive. When you look at early stage investments, for example, into startups, uh, I know that every euro I invest in a startup company has a chance of success uh, when we are in preclinical stage of uh, maximum five to ten percent or one to three percent really depends where the technology is but it's not higher than ten percent if i bet all my money on one company it's a high risk of failure when venture capitalists spread the money on a minimum 15 companies they can narrow down the risk almost to zero and usually when i look at the portfolios of venture capitalists uh one or two companies repay the entire fund and leave enough profit to motivate their limited partners to reinvest in a second fund so this model works really well but the problem only arises when people bet their entire capital on one company especially in drug discovery yeah Yeah, that's it's, it's a huge problem, especially here in Europe, as you, as you mentioned, that the size of the venture capital funds here in Europe are, in my opinion, too small. So uh, when you look at the bigger funds in the Silicon Valley, so you, you see always a, a very, very excellent, I call it a very excellent expertise or expert department, what they always have. And this is what you complete. You, you very in, here in Europe. You, I don't want to see it's 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 not there, but it's very limited because um, a specialist for CRISPR-Cas, for example, these guys are expenses. And the reason why I should join a VC is for European probably not completely clear. So he stays in at the university or at a pharma company or at a biotech, for example, but. We see a lot of people, especially in the genetics field, moving towards uh, jobs in venture capital now. 
And they can then judge the investment. But this is very, very, very expensive to hire all these guys to have the expertise in your in your VC. And it only makes sense when you have very, very, very big VC because then you have this 220 rule. So 2% is, is the management fee, but it's, 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 for example, billions, I don't know, 100, 200 billions of the whole volume and it's in 2%, then you, then you can afford these people and then you can make also better decisions. This is also what I see that um, you have some kind of an advance, ad, advantage in your expertise in your in your VC when you have a bigger VC fund. Mm -hmm. I completely agree to what you say. I think the, the two main points for me are whenever I help scientists move the company forward, the success story is straightforward. You can found the company in Europe. You get mm -hmm. a lot of grants. Uh, and mm -hmm. early stage support. So the minute a scientist has a breakthrough the invention in a research organization, there are sufficient funds for the early stages. But the thing is, and you mentioned CRISPR, for example, it's, and I think the story of Rodganovac and CRISPR therapeutics is an excellent example for how the process then continues after the foundation. So as far as the research did, Rodganovac and Emmanuel Charpentier met in Vienna and then decided to create a company in Switzerland and got early stage funding, obviously there, otherwise there wouldn't be a company. Then the next step was clearly to Boston. So mm -hmm. to the United States to fund the development in the later stages. And this, I think, is the big downside of Europe. We are good in early stages, but there are limited funds at the later stages. And what you said, uh, the size of the fund, anything below 10 million euros in a fund doesn't make any sense. On one hand, you need the experts in the fund. On the other hand, you need to have enough capital to allocate in a big enough portfolio um, to have two winners at least in uh, a pool of 10 to 20 companies. And for mid-stage fund, I think uh, anything below 50 million. So mid-stage preclinical, clinical phase one, it's a little bit later early stage, up to mid-stages. Uh, is the minimum size of the fund 50 million and for later stage funds 100 to 200 million. So it's, uh, these are the you, ranges. Sorry, so you mean the complete, the total volume or just per, per investment? Well, no, the, the, the total volume, the fund size, the fund ooh, size. Ooh, the, I, I, oh, this 50, I think it's still, it's still too less money. I think even 100, when you have 100, you can do mm. probably. 10, 15 investments. So it's always so that you have to keep some dry powder. Uh, powder. Mm. For example, there's a recession, then it's difficult to find um, the next funding round. Then you have to um, put more money into your investments, otherwise they die. So uh, I think in a fund with 10 to 50 million in, in a biotechnology space, in, in tech, I think it's different because you are you are um, faster to some kind of a service or product where you can show revenue. Whereas in also where you also find these um, investors that are more experienced with these e-commerce ideas, where you can raise then also bigger rounds and so on. But here in biotechnology, 10, 50 million is for a fund. In my opinion, like suicide, so it's really, the, really more. 
it's it's uh, I, com- I completely agree it's uh, the bare mm-hmm. minimum to, to start the first fund so when someone okay. wants, wants to start the first fund it <clears> makes <throat> sense to start to get the first fund off the yeah. ground yeah. Uh, it's even harder to raise money for a fund for a first time fund when the team yeah. comes together for the first time so starting with a 10 million round to prove it works and that the team has a deal flow makes sense but then up 55-0 million is the minimum yeah. is the minimum for the next fund to play in this uh, in, the, in this yeah. game yeah and it's actually extremely hard to raise a fund uh when you start up your own vc it's extremely hard because uh your investors investors in the fund they want to see success yeah. and how you want to prove success is that you for this you need money to invest it's 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 really tough it's really tough and it's still an open job for regulators. If any politician is watching, uh, we need to motivate the institutional <laughs> investors, banks, insurances, and also pension funds. It's, it's a huge difference in the United States pension funds, for example. They are not allowed to provide venture capital. And when they would allocate also in Europe only one to three percent of their capital under management into venture capital, it would be paradise for drug development here in Europe. Yeah. Yeah. But this is the general problem I see here in Europe that um, I I call it uh, financial engineering, that this is not so common here in Europe for, Mm -hmm. I know. So when I started, or when we started the company here in Germany, it was extremely um, common that when you, um, yeah, when, when there's a business angel, for example, that this business, I really wanted to have shares in your company. So you have to go to the notary. So, and the usual early tickets are um, this time 25,000 or 50,000, 50, 25,000, but then you spend 1,000 or 2,000 just for the, for your lawyers and the notary. And then four years ago or five years ago, then you had this convertible loan. So I don't know yeah. whether you heard about the Y Combinator um, uh, convertible loan. So it's actually a template you can download from the Y Combinator. And this, this, this has a huge impact because in, in the early beginning, when, when, when also it's not really clear what is the value, what is the valuation of your company, you just have this convertible node and then this question can be answered then in the in the future when you make make a real investment round and there's then real numbers on the table and uh, you can say then to your early investors for sure there's then this discount what you have agreed in your uh, convertible note so I'm a huge fan of this convertible note and these are from the US originally so no, com- completely agreement big shout yeah. out for Y Combinator for yeah. the safe model I started fundraising in 2006 yeah. in in the industry and it there was no standard on the market how yeah. to get capital into a company. And sometimes I got uh, offers of 100,000 euros for 90% of the company, which yeah. doesn't make any sense. And Y Combinator <sighs> just issued, I think it's, uh, I don't have the latest version in mind, but I think it's 7% for $125,000 um, in a in a convertible loan in, in a safe structure with a... Uh, okay. Which is really great. It sets a, it sets a great standard for early stage investments for the founders and for the for those organizations who want to bet in early tickets. Yeah. So actually, about valuation and um, so and an investment, it's very it's very interesting. So for example, last couple of weeks I heard from from a friend. So he wants to raise um, two million, and then. He, 
um, uh, offered uh, some percentage of of his company, uh, and then he also moved. Uh, he also then uh, talked to U.S. investors, and the U.S. investors were then offended and say, "You're not ambitious enough." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 it's a different world. It's a different world over there. Yeah, seed rounds. The, the last two companies I had on the podcast who raised venture capital in Silicon Valley from NFX Ventures. Um, mm -hmm. The wanted seven plus plus eight. It's I think fifty million, fifteen one one five million dollars. Uh, he's located in Israel, but has a provision network in in uh, Palo Alto, mm -hmm. and. The other company, Samantha Dale Strasser with Pepper Bio, if I remember it right, I think it was also 7 million seed round, seed capital, seed capital, yeah. drug development, yeah. artificial intelligence. When I look on at Europe, uh, when we talk about seed capital, we talk about two to 300,000 equity uh, leveraged with one to two million public funding. So we are mm. uh, about 50% of the size that the seed rounds are in the United States, but in the United States, mostly it's venture capital, early stage venture capital. Yeah, but I, I really have to say that and, and keep it in mind, the US is more expensive. So I'm, I'm pretty sure if you have two or three million in Europe, you can go much more far than when you have seven million US dollar in Boston, for example. Keep it in mind because salaries are incredibly high in the in, in the Bay Area and in Boston. So uh, and lawyers are also ex incredibly expensive in the US. So uh, you see now some movements out of the US coming to Europe because they see the opportunities that the development is much more cheaper here in Europe. Especially with the big euro these days, it's also an yeah. additional upside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this, this is when you hear about the salaries in in Boston, for example, for for a specialist, it's it's incredible. It's really now, incredible. I see a lot of mm -hmm. collaboration potential. I completely agree. I mean, uh, bringing the early stage development to Europe. It's uh, it's cheaper. There's a lot of expertise. There's a lot of public yeah. funds. Um, there must be something, someone who motivates the US investors because usually I learned that they get some tax breaks and uh, tax benefits when they invest in uh, US companies. Um, there is not so much, much incentive to bring US capital to Europe. But from a business perspective, I completely agree. I mean, if they would like to, or if they would take the risk to invest in Europe, they could easily find an environment with uh, less, where they could achieve more for each dollar mm. uh, due to weak euro and lower overall expenses in the early stages. And still in the late stages, then they have the hand on a company and can move then uh, the asset and the team to Silicon Valley or to Boston and uh, complete the mm -hmm. later stage developments there where there is more availability, availability of capital. I mean, CRISPR Therapeutics for me is always the best example how you can uh, move breakthrough technology forward. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's let's go back to artificial intelligence. Uh, I started getting interested in digital solutions in 2013, 14, 15, but it was really challenging to talk with investors back in the day. 
The digital investors, as you mentioned before, were solely interested in uh, quick-to-market products. Uh, drug discovery is nothing near to that. Yeah. And the usual drug discovery, drug development VCs were still in their environment where they invested in molecules that tackle big problems and that can become the next game-changing technology. Artificial intelligence was in between. So it was not digital enough and drug yeah. discovery and it was not drug discovery enough. Um, then suddenly, five, six years later, there is a big hype on the market. So yeah. I think every every company that I get in touch with now presents an artificial intelligence solution. Where did this hype come from in the last years? Yeah, the, the hype comes, in my opinion, that there's a lot of pressure in pharma R&D. Mm -hmm. So these, these, I, I, I used it before the word Eurom's law, and this is a little bit like a Democles ward in the whole industry. And uh, I know that when you are a pharma executive and you meet your investors, investors always ask, okay, your, your pharma R&D, your productivity is so low. How you can, how you, how you can improve it, how you can improve it. And they ask every time how you can improve it. And it, it turned out that artificial intelligence was then, a little bit like an kind of an escape rule. Mm -hmm. So they say, oh, we do uh, artificial intelligence. So we now uh, uh, can do all this on scale because artificial intelligence is, an, is this a synonym for investors that you have a scalable product, that your product is scalable, that your service is scalable. And this is now also adapted here in the industry. And you're completely right. So I see in, in talks now, every company is doing now artificial intelligence. So even they have done the same thing before. They, they coined it now artificial intelligence. So best best example is molecular modeling, for example. So I um, had this spectral biology background because of my postdoc. Uh, we used a lot of molecular modeling and uh, in these days it was called molecular modeling and nowadays it's called deep learning AI. The, the techniques, in my opinion, the algorithm were mostly or like a little bit the same. Now, of course, the, um, the, the algorithms are much more advanced for sure. But the data sets, and this is a success, my opinion here, for example, when you look at AlphaFold, Google AlphaFold. Mm -hmm. So for every, um, uh, um, I call it machine learning approach, you need a very good data set where you can learn from and you find the patterns. And AlphaFold's success relies, in my opinion, more on the extremely well-created data sets provided by an army of scientists all over the world. So there are, I guess, thousands of structural biologists. They solved crystal structure the last 30, 40 years, and they um, made them all public. So they are all publicly available. So you can go on a and the protein protein database um it's 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 um it's a, it's a website in the internet and you can download 200,000 um uh, uh, structures from there and this is security data set they 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 had to use so um and i would like to value this more than the algorithm that um deepmind developed because the created data set is often the big bottleneck in the whole development and yeah, that's, that's, that's one point that 
more and more data sets um, becoming available. Mm -hmm. uh, here, when you look at the genomics uh, uh, area, we see uh, a lot of good data sets now becoming available from the big biobanks, for example, the UK Biobank or Genomics England, Genomics England, for example. And these very, I call it excellent curated data sets are the basis now to apply these, um, I call it sophisticated or novel predictive algorithms. It's a great point that you bring up um, the different facets of artificial intelligence. When I, <laughs> I look at the, the topic from the science fiction point of view, I always thought, wouldn't it be really nice that when a scientist has a new idea, that we have a machine where you can feed the idea into it and the machine simulates the entire process from the first experiments up to clinical phase three trials. And based on this data, you can then get regulatory approval at the end of the day of uh, a fully automated uh, uh, manufacturing unit the truck just comes out and is ready to use for the patients. So this would be a dream world so that you don't need this lengthy process in between that uh, you have uh, supercomputers who calculate everything. What's the reality? What are the different facets currently of artificial intelligence and machine learning and truck, truck development that are really reality? So actually, so what you described, I don't think it's so much science fiction in my opinion. Really? So no, no, um, for example, when I look back at my postdoc, um, we uh, had a very, very difficult um, protein structure mm -hmm. to solve, but we had the luck that um, other uh, structures were available with different conformation. And what I have learned is, is when you have a good database, so we had plenty of um, uh, uh, structures available as a data, mm -hmm. then molecular modeling makes more sense. And what you describe, in my opinion, is, is is not the problem of to have a supercomputer. I think it's, it's it's more a problem of having the data. And mm -hmm. when you come to a point where we have so much data available or describing how to do, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, to simulate in vitro experiment, to simulate clinical development and so on, then I think it's not so unrealistic what you describe here. How can, we, how, can we get, how can we get the data? Yeah, we need, we need more data. We need more. And, and very important is that it's um, created and we have to bring these kind of data to the public resource. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always an advocate to bring data to the, to the, to the, uh, to the public. Uh, what I see here, you have to make sure that in the early beginning, so when PhD students um, do their work in the lab, that everything uh, controlled under specific conditions that makes it reproducible for others. Mm -hmm. And when you then have all these kind of results and features into your machine, then it makes sense. Uh, the other problem, what we have still here in academic is that uh, academic research is, in my opinion, still too, un too biased because the academic system works that I'm only got incentives when I voted by other scientists. So it's more clever to bet on topics where I know that other scientists are also interested in because then they quote my work. Mm -hmm. So that's why we have these, these I call this, these clumps in specific areas. Uh, and actually this is, this is a problem 
in the university and the research organizations to go to from these clusters yeah. of um, high quotations or high citations more into the other and other ways. And then what you describe is, is in my opinion, impossible. Their discussions are good and uh, sometimes challenging at the same time. So since mm -hmm. I'm not in academia, I can't mm -hmm. comment on that. But I found the second point, uh, which is more in my area of uh, expertise, quite interesting. Did I understand it right? Accessibility of data is is, is a huge problem. So that uh, data that's produced <laughs> in laboratories uh, at research organizations And also in companies, in early stage companies, is not really accessible so that you don't get access to the data to have a sufficient data um, base where you can start training your artificial intelligence on it. Is that the right understanding or did I miss something? <clears throat> so what you see is that uh, a lot of uh, data which is produced, I call it in these smaller units, which can mm. be just a research lab and a university and so on. They're very free in what they do and how they conduct their research. So the, how, that's, that's the reason why it comes that um, when you want to repeat the experiment in your lab, then you cannot you cannot come to the same results because I don't know, there are some other conditions that are actually not described in the protocol. But because for them, it's, I don't know, probably the air condition is always on <clears throat> 20 degrees And your air condition is constantly on 25 degrees and these five degrees, they make it, you know? So I don't know. <clears throat> But uh, in the early in the early point, um, I agree with you, there's a lot of bias in, in the research and it, it's very difficult that we destroy the bias in the research in the early phase mm -hmm. and to make this research and also available um, because most of them, Uh, most of these results are, in my opinion, unsuccessful. And unsuccessful results are not interested. It's not it's, it's not cool for a scientist to to publish unsuccessful results. So there's no incentives for him. So that he will not see um, citation for this work. But here, I guess it's a huge, huge potential, in my opinion, that machine can learn what can what we can do and what we cannot do. Yeah, that's a big question. I think also in companies, I mean, when when I think when after raising funds from venture capitalists, sometimes mm -hmm. the initial hypothesis doesn't simply work and the company is basically shut down. What yeah. happens afterward with the data is quite simple. It's uh, It stays in a corporate shell. So no scientist has uh, any incentive to publish the data mm -hmm. in a publication. And also the VCs don't have an incentive to open the data room to the public. So it just sticks around in a in a corporate shell very often, in my opinion, where sometimes when they're lucky, they just merge it with uh, another portfolio company. Then it's open for this, that portfolio company, but a lot of companies just don't move forward. No access. Yeah, And the data is completely messy. So it mm. takes ages to curate the data. This is also one point. And nobody is interested in invest time in something where they really don't know whether there's a reward for them. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. 
This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligence strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Do you have any ideas or are there any ideas on the market that you are aware of how to solve that problem? <clears throat> actually, um, yeah, we are talking about early research and I have actually no idea. Uh, what I see is uh, uh, the biobank data, for example, when you use these big cohorts. Um, here you uh, um, work with thousands of participants, for example, and they are really, really well curated, the data, mm -hmm. uh, and this is, brings really standard to it. And, um, What we see with the biobank data and also with our customers who have then always their lab experiments somewhere from an academic partner or from the academic founder, for example, you can test um, these in vitro data in the population data and then it, in some time it turned out that um, the in vitro data was not done properly or it's, it's actually wrong and we cannot see it in the population data. but. We see then in the population data also the signal, which is was, was already postulated, and then it's really good, and we can go on. So um, to answer your question, I think uh, we do not have the resources to clean up all the early stuff, but we can use uh, the data we have from the later stage, from population-based, from clinics, from hospitals and so on. And here we can prove at least the assumption from the beginning. Very, very good. Mm -hmm. Now it would be really great to get access to all the data. Uh, so, so basically you need a super curator uh, who gets all the data and uh, structures it in a way that it's usable for later stage. Um, yeah, but we see now that uh, uh, the biobanks, and I, I, I refer always to the UK biobank because mm. these guys, it's just really fantastic what they do. Mm. And um, I'm a little bit disappointed that we do not have it here in continental Europe, especially here in Germany or the, in, in German-speaking countries, because I see that this is a kind of an infrastructure we, we really need for the future. So... Uh, people uh, stick too much on the research and on, on the data, but when, when they look back to the pandemic, uh, uh, there was an, the, the so-called British variant, the British mutation, and this actually based on the fact that um, only the British had the capacities to sequence in enough COVID tests, and this mm -hmm. is just based on that they had the infrastructure for the UK Biobank. So UK Biobank, their sequence. 500,000 people. So when you want to sequence 500,000 people, you need the machines to sequence. And so then the pandemic, then it's for you easier to sequence also the COVID tests to see whether there's a new variant or not. And uh, it, it, in my opinion, uh, the, the UK is extremely benefiting now from the infrastructure, UK Biobank, in, in two ways. They have uh, now... I call it a, a proper industry in, mm -hmm. in sequencing and DNA sequencing, but they also have now a lot of um, data companies, strong data companies in the area. And more and more with the time you will see that they will um, 
um, take the data and the develop products out of the data uh, based on the UK Biobank or Genomics England. I didn't. I, I was not aware of that. I thought uh, every country um, uses the data properly. That I mean, we also in Austria had a lot of tests, a lot of testing. It was free for the population, which is very good. But uh, do we really don't have the necessary infrastructure to interpret the data afterward and to use the data afterward in in research, like the example you brought up in from the United Kingdom? You mean with COVID? With yes, COVID, for example, I mean, it's just a. Yeah, COVID. So the the, uh, the British they were much more closer to the pandemic than we we, mm. were, we were in the time. So you have your participants in the UK Biobank, and you they, they are frequently monitored the participants, and then you then you know already that whether they have been infected by COVID or not. Mm. And then um, they conducted antibody tests, for example, to see how many people in the whole UK Biobank have antibodies. And then you have an idea how many people have been already infected by COVID-19 in the UK or not. Then, of course, um, uh, when they come, the monitor repeating the participants, the officially participants mm -hmm. of the UK Biobank, come to their physicians and then uh, say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling sick. And then a COVID test is, is, is done. Then this is also going to the UK Biobank facility and then they can sequence. We just only do a PCR. We look, is, is this positive or negative? But they have then really tested or sequenced what kind of variant we have here. So they were much mm -hmm. more closer to the pandemic. And when you're closer to the pandemic, then it's much more easier to um, to say, okay, it's worth um, to shut down here, for example, or uh, what kind of medication is necessary. So um, uh, I, see, uh, I see here a big disadvantage in, in Germany that we do not have this, this biobank infrastructure as, mm. as the UK has. Yeah, would be a great thing. You uh, you named your third post about artificial intelligence in drug discovery and development. Why the way we do science does not work for drug development, and this uh, seems to be one problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, I personally would not care if anybody uses my uh, my data for drug discovery purposes. So, for example, whenever I'm tested or uh, genetics data mm -hmm. or also, I mean, I have Apple Watch and that, that tracks every time when I run and I believe also Apple is investing a lot of capital into improving uh, data readouts from human beings. So if I understood you right, your perfect world would be for uh, moving drug development forward that all this uh, data that comes from human beings uh, is structured into a one huge database then can scientists use for their predictions is this yeah. the simplified right understanding mm, yeah it's simplified but i would like to um say that when, when you look at the uk biobank uk biobank has some so sick people are overrepresented and mm -hmm. i would mm -hmm. like really point to point it out here and this is important so if you're healthy then there is actually no need to monitor you Uh, but if you're sick and there's no treatment available for you, then it's good that you donate your data to the organization and to the infrastructure that the, um, the, uh, the research facilities and also uh, biotech pharma companies can use the data to test in silico ideas in a very, very early stage. Because, and This is really what I would like to uh, to mention. So when this data is available and you can test your hypothesis in a very early stage, 
this is this brings so much. This is what what the people cannot think about. It. It's so so important. It's a very early, it's the earliest time in your development to have an idea whether it's work or not. And if you can prove it, then in the data, uh, then you have also more idea about the endpoints for your clinical trial, I and mean, it's much more easier to set up a clinical trial um, to find a cure, find some kind of treatment, and it is so cheap. Um, compared to the standard way, so that uh, even you have a rare disease and probably only 10 or 20 guys in the world have this disease, mm -hmm. it makes it so cheap that there's an, still a realistic chance that this clinical trial can be funded because the endpoints are so clear and uh, the whole model is so good that you can go on um, uh, this, 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 this uh, for example, publicly funded clinical trial to get a cure, at least a treatment for your disease. I couldn't agree more. There is an interesting point in what you said. You said that we ha only have data data from sick people. Wouldn't it be nice? Uh, let's phrase it differently. The question: What would change if we had access to all data, not only sick people? But also the healthy population, would that be an improvement to drug development processes? Um, so this this is a good question, and I would like to call it in this way, no. No? Um, no, no. So because the dimension there, it's incredible. So, for example, uh, we differ in 200 million positions. So it's so-called single nucleotide polymorphisms. Mm -hmm. So in 200 million positions, my gene differs from your genome. So in overall, it's 3.5 billion DNA letters, but only in 200 million positions we differ. So <clears throat> um, when we look for interaction in the data, uh, sometimes it's so that you need two gene variants to have the disease. So it's in 200 million multiplied by 200 million and then you come to a to a space which is so big, so there are not enough patients on this planet. So um, this 200 million multiplied by 200 million means that you have to sequence 5 million times the human population. Oh, so, okay. so to get to see the statistical power. So mm -hmm. um, I always say, um, that, and, and this is it's not cynical, so I, it's, it's, it's just only a very scientific, a very rational, conclusion is that we do not have enough sick people to conduct proper statistics with okay. the data um, uh, because the dimension and you, you cannot imagine is because this is yeah. the space so 5 million times the human population we need to cover to understand from a statistical point of view the human genome so this is, this is huge and um, we are only talking about a two-way interaction mm. if you're talking about a three-way interaction it would be 200 million multiplied by 200 million multiplied by 200 million so it's like it's it's unbelievable for us yeah so, I, was, uh, I, was, I was always bugging uh, my, my, my doctors with one question yeah. uh when i had my yearly checkup usually got the answer you are healthy so come back when you're <laughs> sick which is a good thing yeah but uh then I always asked my favorite question. I heard that people get cancer when they are in their 40s or 50s. What can I do now? So 20, 30 years ago, when I was in my 20s, now I'm not 48. Uh, what can I do now to avoid getting cancer? 
So, and to that, there was no answer. And I yeah. uh, was hoping that uh, artificial intelligence could could solve this problem, but. Yeah, so some years ago, so we had a project. Um, so uh, we developed prediction models mm. uh, for breast cancer and for type mm. two diabetes and also for Alzheimer's disease. So one of our first projects was to develop um, a, a prediction um, model for Alzheimer's disease. And um, there's this famous gene, um, APOE4. Um, it's when you have it, then it's more, it's it's very likely that at some age you will have Alzheimer's disease, but this can be with 60, but it can be also with 90. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 difficult. So, and it was a very nice, was a good example for what we call explanatory statistics because it is extremely overrepresented in Alzheimer patients, mm-hmm. but it has actually no value for prediction. So, because it's for you important to know when you have it. So, when you have Alzheimer's disease, when you are 90 years old and um, you will only, when you're two weeks or three weeks before you die, then this is actually. This is actually not really of value for you. Value is when you have it, when you're 50, something like this, and how you can prevent in the outbreak of Alzheimer's disease. And we had then a, a, a prediction model. So we had then found interaction of APOE4 with other genes, what provided us a better or what enables us to predict in a better way uh, Alzheimer's disease. But here was then the problem, okay, now you know that there's the likelihood is much more higher, but there is no treatment. So mm-hmm. it's unethically to give you the information that you will have Alzheimer's disease when you're 50. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, uh, <clears throat> so we have done this for a pharma customer, but uh, you see this is the prediction. I know this is um, a lot of, I call it a myth, a little bit in, in digital health, that prediction is actually something that has value in our health system um, because uh, uh, first of all, when there is no treatment available, then it's unethically, so a physician should not tell you this. And the other way around is what what is the accuracy of your prediction mm. because there's then still a chance that this is just nonsense. So you really have to prove it. And to prove it means that you have a prospective clinical trial over the next 20, 30 years. And then it's very expensive to prove it. Very expensive. And it takes ages to prove it. I mean, so hmm? um, um, a solution or a a therapy can always be a product like in the pharma industry. So it's uh, usually a pill or it's a liquid Hmm. that helps patients. Uh, for me, I mean, this is one of my the driving questions of my life. Uh, I would like to understand how diseases develop and a therapy then also can be some lifestyle changes to avoid uh, getting a disease. Or I mean, the ideal point for me would be live happy and healthy for seven, eight or nine decades on the planet. And then when life comes to an end, die fast. So to avoid this, this long time of a, of a disease or suffering from, from a severe disease for two or three decades. And for that, I think it's, in my opinion, it's necessary to understand how does the biological system come from a healthy state? 
up uh, to a to a very long progressing uh, state of uh, of disease instead of uh, just shutting off from one day to the other. Uh, and I was hoping that with artificial intelligence, it's it's easier to get a better understanding beyond drug discovery, drug development. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, for example, type two diabetes. Mm. Um, we have extremely, extremely good prediction models now. So um, I think it's 99% accuracy you see in prediction model for type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot of, um, we know that there's a lot of genetic impact. And then it's actually your body weight you see in a direct in a direct, uh, direct uh, relation to it. So if you, are, if you have problems with your body weight mm. and you do not, do some sports and then you have this genetic impact and it's very likely that you have it that you will that you will develop type 2 diabetes um, um coming to your question so this reminds me to a project we also had so we looked in the uh, uh, genomes of um long living people so 100 120 so they they checked them in the um, in their genomes and compared to people who died early and uh, there's um, there was always the idea that there is this the longevity gene, but actually what we saw there is no longevity gene. There are uh, uh, I call it uh, shortivity genes. So there are really genes that are known for diseases, and if you die early, there are these genes are extremely overrepresented in this in these mm -hmm. cohorts compared to the long living people. And um, this is actually a little bit my takeaway. So I think at some point with your education, you have an idea how to live um, healthy. But if you have a, just a normal genetic makeup, then there's, there's actually no big risks for your life. It's and, it's very interesting to talk about the different facets of artificial intelligence. When I asked the first time this, this longevity questions so yeah. out of personal interest in the nineties, mm -hmm. there was almost no answer from science. So I think it's just really, really way back three, four decades. And when I look now on the internet, I think the, the availability of data is much better. There was uh, some years ago, 10 or 15 years ago, I read a study from, I think it was Harvard University where they did, uh, study over more decades where they observed people uh, with a questionnaire, yearly asked the question, what are your lifestyle habits? And then came to the conclusion that there are four or five factors that influence health tremendously. And now with artificial intelligence, we could scale it up. Is there any chance to get the necessary data to get more and more insights into these mechanisms? Or I mean, is, in Europe, we have uh, our GDPR rules, which protects the data. What are the limitations of regulations that uh, limits the development of artificial intelligence to interact discovery on one hand, but also on the other hand, uh, in getting more insights and understanding of the development of diseases? Yeah, that two things. So uh, talking about the GDPR, I think it's just an excuse for bad research. Sorry, it's <laughs> it's, it's very harsh the answer now mm. because it's actually research. So when you look into the legal text, you see that when it's researched in GDPR, it's it's not so important. So you can use you can use the data. What I always see is uh, uh, people conduct here clinical trials or um, 
genome-wide association studies here in Germany. And when you look a little, look a little more closer, then you see the work is, is not properly done. But it, um, it can be revealed easily when you see the data. But they then say, no, there is this uh, data protection issue. That's why they do not disclose the data. So they keep a little bit um, the fact that they are, have not done it properly. So this is a little bit my opinion on this because um, GDPR, um, people talk about this. When it is research, then it is allowed when, when you look at really in the legal text. So this is actually not, this is really actually not a problem. Um, to your other point with the longevity, um, longevity, there's a lot of movement now in, in, in the scene. And um, there is this uh, famous phrase, um, I can also now uh, cite here. So um, when you look at all these Silicon Valley billionaires now, <laughs> so um, when they were young, they wanted to be rich. <laughs> when they're rich, they wanted to be young. Mm. And that's why you see now a lot of money uh, from people, for example, Elon Musk, they heavily invest in longevity. It's 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 really incredible. And you see a lot of things now upcoming, in my opinion, because for them, money is not an issue. They have a cool life and they want to stay alive. They want to enjoy their cool life. That's why they are there. And they have actually unlimited resources from, from a money perspective. Yeah, so okay. I, I'm pretty sure that we see a lot now and a lot of data will come and they, I'm pretty sure they will also put this data publicly because I haven't mentioned this before, but this is really important. So if your data is in your silo, mm. then the, the use of the data is limited by you, by yourself. Mm. Mm. But when you put the data into the public, then you really see that other people come with new ideas, with new methods, with new technologies, and they really make it useful yeah, that's true and they also find the mistake in your data when people always say ah that's only mine and ah it's the gdpr and whatever then you can make sure that there's something wrong with the data because when when <clears throat> when, when the, the, the data is is proper it's curated and so on um you invested so much and you are you personally want that is you want to see the result out of the data then you're mm -hmm. more open to say okay let's make it public to all the people outside of the world that because then we can have all these kind of check on balances from other sides that they are good results and we can really use it. And in the end, I want to live longer, more healthy. This is my actually goal. And as I said, from the start, from the second Valley billionaires, so they do not argue with money. They only argue about, about their life. And about their lives, yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. This was also more of selfish interest uh, in the nineties. My big mm -hmm. question was, uh, I want to stay healthy. I don't want yeah. uh, to get sick. So what can I do to increase these chances of staying healthy longer? You never can avoid any accident. So, I mean, sometimes life happens, but yeah. uh, I think also lifestyle has a huge impact. And I'm curious to to hear also from people like Elon Musk and uh, Bill Gates. And uh, I think also Tim Cook, Apple might be something doing in that area. Um, what conclusions they draw when they put really big, big numbers mm. behind it. I think Christian Angermeyer is also someone who is investing yeah. heavily in that space. Um, when we look at the situation right now that you mentioned with the availability of data, um, wouldn't it be helpful to get access uh, also on what you call bad data of uh, data from, from studies that failed uh, to increase the know-how? 
Yeah, also I mean, bad data is, I call it badly curated data. Mm, okay. So for example, <clears throat> when we started companies and we had only access to, I call it shitty data sets. And then <clears throat> we had to build our own quality control unit. And sometimes it turned out that 20% of the data was useless. So because mm -hmm. the standard quality control, this data could not pass it. Um, good example was then, uh, so you have the genomic information and then you have the phenotype and the phenotype mm -hmm. says, so this is a woman. You look in, 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 in your genomic information, you see it's actually a man. So mm -hmm. then, then there was then the discussion, yeah, probably it's intersexuality, but 20%, come on, nobody can tell me that this happens 20% of the time. So this is really huge. And this is just only, this is only a sign that it was not properly done. Um, so, but anyway, so what we have done here at Biotex is that um, we took these badly curated data and we created in our own ways after standard um, our standard quality control and um, from this data set, so roughly 80% were then used, is, is useless, is, is useful, sorry, it's useless, mm -hmm. it's useful, 20% 20, 20 is useless and 80% is useful and we can then go on. So to improve drug development, if I, I sum up the, the, the conversation mm -hmm. until now, in early stage development, there are two problems to solve. One is getting access to data. And the second one is the curation of the data and companies like yours, then when they really sit down and do the second step and they curate the data, you have, uh, 80% of, uh, of the data you get that is useful for further, for further creation of solutions. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning, uh, but what we see now is that, uh, when you look at the biobank, Uh, data, which is coming more and more available over the time. Mm -hmm. This is now really excellent. So you can, they have proper quality control units and so on. So in the beginning, it was mostly useless, but they have really learned. So, uh, for example, the Wellcome Trust has in invested massively in the beginning mm -hmm. in this area. So it's the Wellcome case, um, case control consortium, for example. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this data, um, even the results were published in nature. So a lot of, there's a lot of bad quality in it, but the welcome trust, so they paid it, but they also said, okay, look, um, uh, what are the findings now, five, 10 years later, what we, what would we have done wrong and what we should, what we can, um, how we can avoid in the future. And these learnings were taken, especially by UK Biobank and Genomics England, so in the UK, and then it's, it's, it's used in these normal Biobank data. So I think we are much on a, here on a really good way. So I know people always complain about the quality data, but um, in my opinion nowadays, it's a little bit also a kind of a, we call it bike shedding discussion because people do not understand the algorithms and how you can provide value and so on. They always say, oh, the data is shitty, you know? <clears throat> the, I mean, for me as an economist, quality is a function of capital. 
So yeah. I mean, you mentioned before that studies are cheaper in Europe, but uh, when we have less capital, we can't do as much as uh, as, as deeper pockets can achieve. And uh, also Welcome Trust, I mean, I completely agree. Kudos to Welcome Trust. They are doing a lot mm -hmm. of good things and yeah. uh, bring research and move research and development forward. You mentioned biobank. I'm just curious. Maybe it's a stupid question, yeah. but I ask it anyways. Uh, in your opinion, to get more data that uh, moves AI drug development forward, how many biobanks would we need in the world to increase the quality and the accessibility of data? Um, we need only one biobank, a world biobank. <laughs> but with, um, um, how how much capital and how much resources to get all the data? In my opinion, um, when, when you look, for example, at the Western um the development countries, for example, Western Europe, mm -hmm. in my opinion, we, we are talking about, then let's say it peanuts, because a lot of what you now do is done by the daily routine in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. The only way is now to documentate it mm -hmm. and um, put on top, for example, genotype testing. So genotype mm -hmm. testing, it costs 25 euros. 25 euros is genotype okay. testing. So it's when you run these um, genotype chips from Illumina, for example. So it costs you also with the quality control and with the uh, bioinformatic um, pro, um, procession, it, it, it took you or it takes you 25 euros. So it's incredibly cheap. And uh, a full human genome sequencing is now below 1000 and last time i read to buy, i read 100 us dollars so this is so incredibly cheap now uh, and uh, the people who cover the data they, they are this is the physicians uh, mm. the the nurses in the hospital and um i think it's only important to keep an eye on sick people because there are enough healthy people already available where we have the information as a standard control mm. And then um, you can manage this. So, um, in my opinion, it's it's there are just only excuses with GDPR and um, that there's not enough money available. So, what you can save, what you can really bring to the people and to the patients, I think it's incredible. Uh, but the investment, in my opinion, and this we are here, we can call it here the concept of the entrepreneurial state. It's it's almost nothing because they pay already for this. So we have the data. We just need to structure the processes properly so yeah. that the data is curated and uh, yeah. made accessible for scientists yeah. or for yeah. the research. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this, and in my opinion, and this is my learning from the last five years. Um, when you bring the data to the public or make it public. Then you also see that a lot of physicians probably don't do their jobs properly. Mm -hmm. So you have then also kind of a quality control how people, because you see everything and then you see that uh, the person is diagnosed, for example, for a specific disease. But then you see then um, all these um, biochemical parameters in, in the data, then you see, okay, it cannot be this disease. And I think here there's a lot of, there's 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 a real problem. I mean that um physicians they do not want to be monitored by this in this way. And I think that this is this is actually more the problem than um GDPR or that it's so expensive to set up a big bio bank here, ex especially in Europe 
because we pay already for this and we, we pay enough for this and can be covered really easily because it's not so expensive. No, I completely agree. And I think the, the healthcare system in the United States and in Europe is far too expensive anyway. So it's, uh, it's unfinanceable mm. in the way in the state, in the state we have it currently. And when I just sum up and, uh, in my mind and, and try to look at, at more at it from a science fiction point of view again, everything that we can do that uh, improves diagnostics, for example, to diagnose diseases much earlier or uh, speed up drug development processes mm -hmm. that bring drugs to the market much quicker to cure diseases and also understand on the longevity point of view. I think this re research is also very valuable because it helps people to understand how they can stay healthy much longer. It drives down the expenses for the healthcare system. And this is think, uh, one of the big problems that Europe and the United States mm -hmm. currently have. And artificial intelligence plays a huge role in that. Yeah, but here you see um, a, a huge difference in the population, in my opinion, because you have these well-educated people. Mm. They care about their their health. Um, and they are in, they are they are they are, um, they are willing to invest in their in, in, in their healthy bodies. And then on the other hand, you still um, see a lot of um, uh, not so well-educated people. They just only say, okay. Um, I still want to drink my beer in the pub and I still want to uh, enjoy my life in this uh, unhealthy, um, with this unhealthy lifestyle. Um, but just deliver me the pill. I take the pill every day and that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we should talk a little bit more about the genome. Sorry, um, sure. to point it out here. Um, because um, <clears throat> I see in now, um, uh, and I think this is uh, the origin uh, here where we talk. So uh, the, the human genome, so it was sequenced more than 20 years ago, so in roughly 2000, 2002, and it was then published. Um, but we still now see more and more impact of the human mm -hmm. genome, so so the pharma industry. So as I said, uh, Erom's law, for example, there's now breaking Erom's law from 2010 and so on. And, um, and I see here the real value of... Um, and I actually dislike the word artificial intelligence because there is no definition of intelligence. So how you want to define artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I would like to call it <clears throat> predictive statistics and also causal statistics, um, um, causal inference. So and this is actually the huge opportunity we see now. Uh, because as I said before, the big problem is to show efficacy of your drug. And when you look in, 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 from, from a mass perspective to it, so efficacy and causality is actually the same. So in 2019, there was the Nobel Prize in Economic Science for Esther Duflo, for example. Mm -hmm. And she had this brilliant idea of um, conducting um, uh, randomized um, uh, trials to get an idea whether the development aid really works in, in India or not. Mm -hmm. So she conducted prospective trials. So she selected random in a randomized <clears throat> uh, allocation, a group of poor people in India who receive some development aid and the others do not. And then she could compare it. And um, this is extremely, this is actually the gold standard they took from medicine to the economic science. 
But this is so expensive. This is really so expensive to uh, um, um, conduct a clinical trial. And this is also we had in the, in the beginning of our conversation. Uh, clinical trials. This is then where you have to find the patients, and uh, you have always not enough patients. Recruitment is slow. Then you have um, uh, so your assumption hits uh, the reality. I call it that some of your inclusion contraria they do not match with uh, available patients and so on. And uh, in economic science, and it was very interesting that two years later, so last year, there was a Nobel Prize for causal insurance. And mm-hmm. uh, so you have the problem in economic science that you cannot run trials, prospective trials all the time. So they looked in ways how they can use observational data and prove causality out of observational data. And then they open up the completely new um yeah division of of statistics and this is causal inference and uh, to point it out i see here now the biggest issue for artificial intelligence for machine learning causal inference because when we then bring causal inference so we just only check for causality in the data and this is often why as these i call it the the three-point way so you have mm-hmm. your your instruments that's actually your genetics and then, then you look for a trade and for the disease. So very famous is cholesterol, for example. So you have genes that can increase cholesterol in the human body, but on the same way, they increase the risk of heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And then you now can model if you have genes that, that just only increase a little bit the cholesterol, they only increase a little bit heart attacks. If they increase a lot cholesterol, they should also have an effect a lot on heart attacks. And this this relationship you can then model, and then you can say, okay, this is this is causal. This has the causal causal relationship. And um, to apply this now here, combine this um, this. Um, predictive modeling. So you have prediction models where you say, okay, um, I take now the point where I know this is actually, or I think it's causal and mm-hmm. I took it out of my m- model and then I look for my prediction of my model. So here I see a lot of potential. And uh, the genome gives you the link to the biochemical level because you actually see whether you have these alterations in the genes or not. And if you have them with the biobank, 2 million, for example, genomes fully um, yeah, curated and with phenotypes, then you, you, you can mimic actually whether some um, alteration or some modulation of a specific drug target gene can work or not. And here I see a lot of potential. Can we, can we stay, mimic? Um, do, does that does, does, uh, mimic mean that this study is simulated yeah so so not because i mean um mm-hmm. i just rem- remember the conversation you had with emily mitchell about the centralized clinical trials mm-hmm. you mentioned the problem that mm-hmm. uh getting enough patients patients uh large number of patients into a study is a science by itself so it's not that yeah. easy uh yeah. to do a forty thousand patient study yeah. uh, in a phase three setting like uh, moderna did uh, even getting 200 patients sometimes in rare diseases is quite tricky and difficult. And uh, I saw some cases where it can take five to 10 years to get this patient population that really is willing to participate in a study. And one solution is decentralized uh, clinical trials. And uh, 
did I really understand you right that we are talking about with artificial intelligence about simulating entire trials uh, in a computer? So what I so what I would like to point out here is that you have these two things when you want to develop a drug. One is you need a ligand and you need a safe ligand. And um, in my opinion, there are a lot of methods now available where you can test the ligand in, in, in forehand and see whether it's safe or not. And the other big problem remains is the efficacy. So do you see an effect due, mm -hmm. due to the modulation of the target you choose? But what you can do now is you look at uh, the genome of, for example, what we do is 2 million people, and then you look for alterations. Mm -hmm. for the specific gene so um, we have done this with COVID in the past so we were interested by people have a severe COVID cause and there are others that just only have mild moderate and we applied in this cause inference methodology on uh, these two cohorts and what we figured out is that uh, severe COVID-19 patients had higher neutrophils much more higher neutrophils okay. than people with mild moderate cases yeah, yeah mild moderate COVID-19 cases and Uh, we could really saw or we could really demonstrate this with um, uh, prospective regression modeling, drop one analysis, propensity score. So with a lot of mathematical methods, we, we were able to to show that there is there's, there's a strong evidence for the neutrophils. And then um, we went on to look into the genetics of the neutrophils. And then we saw that genes that have been uh, significant for um, neutrophils for the number or the, for the uh, for neutrophil cell count in general. And here you can then use the entire population, 500,000 people. And then you also see smaller signals because the population is much more strong, much more stronger. It's much more bigger. So even you see the uh, yeah, um, uh, effect sizes that are smaller than usual. That's why you, um, when you look just only at COVID-19 patients, so um, uh, in, in the literature, there are only 1,000 or 5,000 cases available. And these, these populations are then still too small to catch up all these very interesting genetic variants. And this was this kind of trick that um, these, you can say, artificial intelligence methodologies, they enabled us to find a causal trait, this was the neutrophils, and mm -hmm. that then we can look in the entire population and look up what kind of genes modulate neutrophil cell count. And um, we ended up with CDK6. So CDK6 is an enzyme which is responsible for the cell cycles originally, mm. but has an extremely strong impact in neutrophils and especially in a specific um, uh, in a specific uh, uh, job that the neutrophils do as part of the innate immune response. And this is so-called uh, netosis. So this is a special form of apoptosis. And these neutrophils, they just blow off and uh, they release so-called neutrophil extracellular traps. And uh, yeah, what we figured then out is that um, uh, all these drugs that have been tested successfully so far today, so Bamitizipine, for example, this is the Janus kinase, um, uh, was found, I think, in 2020. Um, it's an Eli Lilly compound and then mm -hmm. tested successfully against severe COVID-19 patients. And then um, another um, uh, cancer drug so far, was recently also tested successfully. And what we could then show in in vitro experiments uh, with, a, uh, with a partner from the University of Bristol is that all these compounds 
they inhibit actually these, these, these net neutrophilia axillary strep formations, so mitosis. Okay. So what I want to tell you here is that um, uh, it was just a simulation, and you, but when you do it now just with, your, with the population data you have, you're so close to a clinical trial so that's why it makes sense to simulate it first um, mm -hmm. um, using the naturally occurring alteration in your genome to see whether there are impact on specific traits, which then are causal for a specific disease. So your, we, hmm? so your model was uh, able to rightfully predict uh, what's going on in the human body, where the big problem is. And uh, all the therapies that came later to the market then mm -hmm. basically tackled exactly this problem that you predicted. Yeah, it? yeah. You can say you can say the the drugs, and this is now what we what is now in revision for publication. We could see in our analysis that um, all these kind of drugs which have an impact on the severe COVID nineteen status, they have an impact on the specific storm of apoptosis on the mitosis. Mm -hmm. So they inhibit this overreaction of the human body. And the overreaction is mostly, or it's, it's, you can really narrow it down to these neutrophils. And so this is what we can could see, what we can, what, what you could see uh, in the data. Yeah. So when I would try to think in commercial <laughs> applications, so one application would be that you have a tool at hand for the pharma companies mm -hmm. that before they go into clinical development, that they check their their compound their asset uh whether it really tackles the problem that you predict uh and then imp include it in their decision making process whether it makes mm. sense to move with that compound forward or it's better to switch to another compound mm. yeah would it, so we, mm? would that ahead, be a, would it would it be a possible commercial uh, application of uh your so development this, yeah this is actually what we do so we offer this in, in, a, in a service model um Mostly we call these emerging biopharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. So it has a little bit of the reason that um, big pharma companies, they have their own departments and they think they can do this better. But <laughs> anyway, no comment from my side. So, um, and, and actually this, and the reality is actually mm -hmm. the sales cycle with the pharma, big pharma companies. It's, it's take you one year or longer. So we're working mostly with smaller companies and then the sales cycle is much more, it's much more faster, which is for us more important. And what we do with our, um, uh, we call it Centri, synthetic clinical trial, that we provide not only an idea whether there is efficacy, so this is what we have done with COVID, for example, but what we, you can also check is when you have a molecule um, already in the market and you're interested in a new indication, for example, especially in, all, in, in the rare diseases, because the, the data is there. And as I said, even with a small patient group, we can um, determine the causal traits and then we can go back to the bigger population mm -hmm. and then um, I call it simulate um, because on these disease patterns, um, the patients in the big population and look whether there is an effect on specific genes or not. Where your original molecule, we know that this is, uh, they can modulate these uh, traits or not. And uh, the last one, and I think it's also interesting, um, I said before, safety can be checked in the early phase. That's right. Um, for some in, in, in animal models, for, ex for example. But uh, due to the fact that you only test the compounds only for a specific 
period of time in the beginning. It's just only you want to move on. So you you, you mm-hmm. do the test for one or two months, for example. But sometimes when you have um, uh, <clears throat> when you have a treatment which has to be given or has to be administered for years, for example, for chronic diseases, especially, then uh, uh, you really have to check whether the inhibition or mostly it's an inhibition or the modulation due to your um, molecule to a specific target does not uh, induce another disease. Um, For example, uh, in the past, we we saw that uh, the inhibition of a specific channel could um, lead to illipidity, for example. Mm -hmm. But this was then what was not was um, is, is, is then really a danger, and if you, but you have to know it in the, in before because uh, you you then can think about how long the treatment can be, so that you say okay, this is just only um, for the indication, so this can only be done uh, can only be given for a specific period of time, and then we have to check the patient whether there are symptoms regarding in this area or not, or. Are there, for example, um, genetic variations which makes the, sen- the effect even stronger, and we have some more evidence, more, more chances, and a higher likelihood that this adverse effect will occur? So, this is, these are the three things you can do actually now with the data. So, you check check for the efficacy, you can check for new indication, and you can check for target mediated to- toxicity. That's 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 awesome. So, drug development simulation. I think isn't one problem also in clinical trials to find the right patients. I mean, you mentioned COVID, um, yeah. and I was thinking while we were speaking, I was thinking about this this problem. So, I mean, um, from the information I have, which might not be right, but uh, my perception of uh, the COVID vaccines is that they work really well for severe cases, um, and don't have much effect when people uh, are not at risk to get a severe disease um, compared to uh, compared to the situation when they just uh, sit at home and uh, get over it uh, in a couple of days. So from, from, from the patient perspective, but also in drug development, I think the interesting thing for trials with vaccines then would be uh, to find the patients that are highest at risk for getting the severe disease to also see the effect in a clinical trial setting. So whether it works or not, the vaccines might not be the best example yep. because uh, yep. for the dynamics <laughs> of vaccines uh, to, to to protect the healthy population. But when I think cancer, for example, um, does your solution also help uh, to find the right patients for a study? I think just when when we bet a lot of capital in a clinical trial and we take the wrong patient population and uh, theoretically the drug would work uh, very well in a different kind of population, uh, then we actually include it in a trial. Uh, when such a clinical trial fails because of selecting the wrong patient population, um, I think it's really hard to bring it back. So can your solution help us mm-hmm. in that cases? Yeah. So we had another uh, project here in the company. It's um, uh, a lactoferrin um, for um, for a rare disease. The rare disease is called Huget disease. So it's an autoinflammation disease. And you have this painful, um, um, yeah, uh, um, uh, uh, problems with your eyes. Mm. And the overall idea um, when, when they were introduced to the compound was that in the budget disease patients, iron would be missing. So lactoferrin and uh, 
you, you hear it, ferrin. So Dr. Ferrin is able to bind iron. Um, so they said that there is some, this would be then an iron thing in Beja disease patients. So the what was originally claimed. And then we looked a little more closer and we run our um, uh, uh, here causal modeling on this. And then we figured out it's actually um, based on a, uh, on eosinophils. So it's a specific, um, um, yeah, uh, you can say immune cells that are um, um, going into the eyes and then they start an infiltration and the infiltration is then the cause of the vasculitis, which is then the real cause of the Bejet disease. So <clears throat> what we could figure out is that the eosinophils is actually the point it's, it's a problem. And then you can use the eosophenids as an endpoint for your clinical trial instead of the iron. So with the iron, because the iron has actually no clue in our causal model, what you see in a big population and so on. So when you now go into a clinical trial, you just look for the eosinophils instead of the iron. And then you have a better endpoint because you have already proven that there is causality between the reason if it's and the outcome of the disease and not of the iron. When you have just the assumption still with your, 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 your model with the iron, then the iron you see everywhere, you know, so, so, so um, to say it in this way. And then it's very likely that you fail, you know, because um, you have just looked for the wrong, for the wrong parameters in your data. And this is really a strong thing. Um, because when you can choose better endpoints, mm -hmm. um, you can also, and this is a biostatistical problem, uh, you then also can um, select or you can choose fewer fewer number of patients for a clinical trial because what you want to see is much more clear for you. And then you only need not you need so much patients anymore as in the beginning. It's a smaller group. But still, if you show this effect in the smaller one, the p-values you will get should be still significant. And this, this is my opinion, the real impact. Because uh, finding patients, this, this is this is the next big thing after you predict the efficacy in genome-wide association data and population data. So you have you still have to prove it prospectively for the regulators. But if you, for example, for a rare disease, you have to recruit 1,000 patients. So this is like, okay, forget it. You will never find 1,000 patients, even you have sites all over the world and you you are willing to pay um, um, incentives for patients to join. It's, 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 it's so, it's really tough. And here's see also another point we, we really have to um, see when when it's about this causal AI thing and um, our um, synthetic um, control arms. And synthetic control arms, there are fantastic thing. I don't know whether synthetic. you heard about this. No, not yet. What is it? So the, the origin is in oncology. In oncology is so that for some tumor diseases, there were some drugs available. I, I call it in this way, very, very simple. So um, when you now have a new and you want to come with a new drug, with, with, with uh, you think personally, this is a much more better drug um, uh, to the market, you have to conduct a clinical trial. And it is so that you, uh, in the standard setting, you have these placebo-controlled um, randomized clinical trials. So you have your population and some will receive just a placebo and the others will receive your new, new drug molecule. 
but to receive a placebo for a, a tumor patient means actually his death. So, and then you run an unethical clinical trial because um, half of your population will die for sure yeah, because yeah. they're not treated. And actually there is a poor treatment available. I call it a poor or not so good treatment available. But if you don't give it them to them, then this is really, really, really a point, you know? Then um, then it's the idea, okay, I, I um, do the clinical trial against uh, uh, the standard of care and this is a poor treatment. And then they had sometimes the problem that these poor treatments, they are off-label, so they are not really officially given and so on. There was not, so become more and more problematic. And then you had um, uh, the possibility that you took retrospective data of tumor patients mm -hmm. and you just model now um, the progression of the tumor growth. And this can be really done in a simple Excel sheet. So it's, it's not so, so, so much sophisticated turn to be honest, it's very simple, but you need the data of the tumor patients and you, you simulate in the way how the tumor is growing without the treatment. And you just only have one arm of real patients and these real patients receive your medication and you test against the synthetic clinical control arm. It's, um, yeah, it is established, I think, last five to 10 years, mostly in oncology. And the synthetic clinical control arms, so this is also a causal inference methodology, uh, uh, developed actually also here from the one guy who uh, received the Nobel Prize last year mm -hmm. because he wanted to um, he wanted to prove that immigration from Cuba to Miami does not have an impact on um, uh, the unemployment rate in Miami. Mm -hmm. But then he wanted to compare Miami with another U.S. city and then he realized there's actually no. <laughs> and so then... And then he, he created the synthetic clinical control arm that he said, okay, so this is now Miami without the immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so, and this is now also now coming back to clinical trials. So this idea of causality, and I see here also now a huge improvement. So a lot of things now going on that you can decrease the number of patients in the clinical trials. So, and, um, when people know that there is no placebo-controlled um, randomized clinical trial, so there is not a chance to just receive the placebo, because this is actually also some kind of jeopardy for these guys, um, then they are also more willing to say, okay, there's a new treatment, and I, I, I read your papers, and um, it looks good for me, and there's a really chance that, uh, that, that it can be healthy after the clinical trial, then they go for it. Otherwise, people say, okay, when there's a 50-50 chance, um, uh, but, we saw but, in the past. Hmm? But what about the bias? I mean, wasn't the reason to invent uh, double-blinded clinical trials uh, with placebo control to to reduce bias? Is is, uh, is that a problem then? I mean, when people know already that uh, there will not be a placebo, uh, does that jeopardize the results of the study, in your opinion? Yeah, but you have to done them uh, as a synthetic clinical trial. Um, you have to done this then properly. So here you mm. really should then see the impact. Uh, but I would like to well, I would like to tell you one little thing about the the thing um, uh, we have seen in the past in clinical trials because of the um, jeopardy for the patients. So in the past, it was then more and more difficult to run these clinical trials in Germany because people say, okay, when there's a 50-50 chance, I, I got them actually nothing, then I will not participate. Mm. And 
uh, resulted in a lot of movement of these clinical trials and towards Ukraine and Georgia, for example, mm. because there are so poor health systems that patients say, okay, so the standard of care is nothing. So I participate in the clinical trial and then I have the 50% chance that I get the, the treatment. So this is what we have seen in the past. Mm. Um, uh, and that's why I see these uh, novel statistics, statistical um, um, uh, methods. They, they say really, I call it a triple down effect. And we know it in economics. You're also for patients in lower income countries. Before we come to the last two questions, yeah. uh, I, I want to check back if I yeah. understood you right. You said for, simu for simulation of synthetic control arms, Excel is enough. At one point, is it really Excel? I mean, Microsoft, the, the wonder tool that we have at hand. Um, so in the beginning, as was really Excel. I know that um, the big providers of synthetic clinical tools and, and, and will not call names here. Mm. They will say they have, they also use a sophisticated, um, sophisticated algorithm. But in the end, you can also do machine learning with Excel. This is, I know, I know a lot of people will, you know, I give, probably it will end up now with a shit storm, but uh, it, it's possible. You can do it. Um, and believe me, and, 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 um, bigger organizations, um, Microsoft Excel is still the standard. Yeah, I, I know it also from other areas, but it's my experience is 20 years ago. I wanted to just check back <laughs> if I have still the right understanding. It was in information technology. It was not in the pharma yeah. industry. But very often when there was a salesperson saying it's an automated process <laughs> and the data is handed over, automated, <laughs> uh, the reality was that uh, someone freelancer was sitting somewhere in the world taking the data from one database yeah. transform it transforming it manually in excel and uploading yeah. it to the next database so yeah. this is, was yeah. very often in <clears throat> the reality and it's good to hear that excel is still useful today so bill gates did a good job at the end of the day yeah 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 the principal mass you know what, what you can change you know <laughs> yeah so, mathematics yeah. don't change yeah Yeah, when, when the data is becoming bigger and bigger, then, then Excel is a problem, for sure. But for a, start, for a, but for a starting point, it's, it's still one yeah. of the best tools to use. I mean, yeah. so let's, let's, not yeah. be, uh, let's look at mm. it from the positive side. It's one of the best tools because you can easily yeah. uh, model something. Yeah, but yeah, when you, when you look at these specific examples, so you look at the tumor growth, so you have tumor patients from the past, mm. you monitor it over five, 10 years. Sometimes, okay, sometimes shorter because the survival rate is not so high. So you try um, to make these patients to one average patient. Um, and for sure, first of all, you when you want to condense all these people to one person, you need uh, other tools in Excel for sure. But if you come to the stage, then you can use Excel. But I think, I mean, the, the message for me in there is uh, mm. it, it's not difficult to get started on this journey as an organization. So uh, definitely. It, doesn't, it doesn't need tremendous amount of investments upfront. So mm. the simplest thing to start is get the data scientists, use Excel, get started right now. And then when you progress your organization on that journey, you can always invest in more sophisticated solutions. But the, the first step is pretty simple. 
Yeah. So this is actually, I would like to call it, we are living in fantastic times now because mm -hmm. everybody can now do fantastic research together with, with this computer oh, yeah. from home. So because if you need more um, computational power, then you can use cloud solutions, for example. Uh, a lot of companies I see are virtual now even in, in the drug development space. Mm -hmm. So they do all these kind of validation computationally and then they select drug molecules, buy them, test them in uh, contract research organizations and then they bring it into the clinic. So this is a lot what you can do computationally. So yeah, as it said, so uh, software is eating the world. I mean, these are fantastic words at the end of the podcast that uh, that you said we're living in the best times ever. When I think back to the 80s, when I had the question, it meant traveling the whole world to get an yeah. answer from an expert. Today, we have a Zoom call. Uh, I can ask you <laughs> my questions about artificial intelligence and drug discovery. I can read your posts on LinkedIn where you give away mm. a lot of information for free. And my last two questions to you on this podcast are, is there one topic that you would like to talk about at the end of the podcast that I didn't ask you questions about it? Yeah, for me, it was just only important to highlight that, um, and this is where we can wrap it up here. So wrap it up. Um, the important part is we have all the hype, there's all this ligand, ligand ability, this alpha four that we predict now, the protein structure and can do molecular modeling in a better way. But actually the revolution is done now in, in drug ability. So how we can select the right drug targets, how we can find new indication, especially for orphan diseases. This would be this so tremendous as you can imagine mm -hmm. about this. So now you, you check in your two million, you simulate this, and then you, you get an, a good model for just five, 10 patients worldwide. And uh, it's then much more easier to convince regulators to conduct a clinical trial with three or four patients when you have these evidence found in big population data. Mm. And of course, um, this has an impact how we conduct clinical trials. So how we think about causality changing our clinical trials tremendously. Great points, great points at the end. My final question to you then is when someone is motivated after listening to the podcast with you yeah. to get started on the journey and would like to include your team um, in their studies or on the other hand, an investor would like to explore ways to invest in your other ideas that uh, you are about spinning out mm. into, into separate companies or do it in your company. What's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, so just drop me an email. So uh, I'm always keen to to talk to people. So it's always interesting to learn more um, because in the end, it's a people's business. So if you have a problem in the area that you're not you're not you're not sure about the efficacy of your compound, you look for a new indication, or you want to check the toxicity, just drop me an email, and um, we will have a look. And if you are in general interested in this in this topic of um, how now drug development change from more reductionistic to holistic science, uh, I can also recommend uh, um, uh, my book Chemical Biology, where I describe the parts um, um, how now the whole industry is changing based on these new technologies coming in, 
because uh, when you look at CRISPR-Cas, for example, or artificial intelligence, so it was 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 not there 15 or even 10 years ago, and it's completely changing now the industry, and this is extremely exciting now. That's true. That's true. With your consent, I will post your email address, your LinkedIn profile, okay, the link good. to your book on Amazon. I think it's on Amazon also, so it's easy to. Yeah, you can you can book it everywhere. So it's yeah. um, so um, the publishing house is Richard Springer, but um, mm -hmm. also only on, on Amazon. Yeah. Super. I will post these links in the description to the podcast okay. so people can find you. Marco, thank you very much for this insightful conversation about artificial intelligence in drug discovery. I learned a lot of new things. It was amazing talking to you and listening to your answers. I wish you and your team a happy weekend and good luck for your future and development of your ideas. Yeah, thank you much. And yeah, thank you for having me here. So it's um, so I, I always really like it when people do ask questions, you know, because then we, we, we need to be on the right track, you know. And as I said, so um, for us, it's really important to bring these new technologies really into the field because we see a lot of value for people outside. And it's so important to um, that people know about these chances we have here. And um, that's why I'm so happy that I could tell a little bit about us and our technology with you today. Thank, Thank you, you very much and have a great weekend. See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Did you like this episode? Then please, please leave a positive comment and a like. Have a great day.